Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I'm the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. I am just so uh, thrilled and excited to share this episode with you today. Uh, a little bit different, not just me talking. I am so uh, just uh, honored to have, as a guest on the show, uh, the provost and professor of historical theology at the seminary that I attend, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Dr. J- Jason Dusing. Uh, Dr. Jason Dusing is a wonderful professor. I was uh, thrilled. I was elated to have him as one of my uh, seminary professors for a class I took this past summer on the history of the Baptist denomination and uh, of the Baptist church. And so I was so excited to be able to connect with him through that class. And we've been able to stay connected somewhat throughout the course of the summer and into this uh, semester of school. And uh, I was that's kind of where it led to this conversation. <laughs> uh, I'm so happy he was able to uh, carve out some time to just chat with me. And uh, I am so honored that I get to share this conversation with you. We just kind of sit down and talk about uh, what I uh, proceed to sort of term, and uh, which is uh, theological slow cooking. Um, and that's um, a term that we sort of unpack uh, in comparison with theological microwaving, because I think there is this sense in which um, we approach ministerial education, especially as if it were a process in which we microwave uh, preacher boys. Uh, the faster that we can get them into a church, the better. The faster that we can put them out the pasture, uh, the better that they will be, and because obviously it doesn't really matter. They're serving the church. But I think actually that is more detrimental than if we were to retain some of those preacher boys and let them slow cook, let them mature and develop over uh, the course of more years of experience, more years of slow sort of marathon running ministry. Um, and I think that there's something to be said for that because that's not always what we feel. Uh, ours is a day in which everything feels immediate and urgent and everything has to be done now and quickly. And um, especially that is true oftentimes when we are in ministerial training courses. Uh, we are told that, uh, you know, it is better to uh, get all this information into your head and get out into the ministry as fast as you can. And there's really no pause. There's really no time to, to meditate, to consider, to have that sort of slow cooking mentality when it comes to your heart and mind and soul. Um, and I think that that sense of urgency, which, um, sometimes is good. Yes, I, I don't mean to say that we don't have an urgent message that many people need to hear, but I also think sometimes that sense of urgency spoils our steadfastness and sort of ruins our faithfulness, our long-winded endurance for the things of God. And I think that's really what we dive into. Uh, Dr. Dusing and I sort of unpack many things as it pertains to long-winded ministry, being a, a, a slow cooker in terms of theology. And uh, as he so eloquently uh, uses the picture, having lots of theological furniture um, in order to care for souls. Um, and I think we just 
just have a good time talking about that, what it means uh, to have that sort of uh, patience in ministry, patience in theological training, and why theological education is so important uh, for the good of the church and the glory of God. Uh, so, uh, I share this with you. I'm so excited to be talking with Dr. Dusing. He's a thrill to chat with. He was uh, a thrill to learn from, and uh, I hope that you benefit from this, uh, even if you're not in, in some sort of position of ministry or theological training, I think you will find this a really profound, um, some profound insights into uh, into just education in general and uh, different things in terms of literature and theology and inspiration. Of course, uh, it's Dr. Dusing, so we end up talking about Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, the beauty of things that uh, we sometimes are hidden to us, and uh, we get into lots of stuff like that. But I, I really enjoyed this conversation, so I hope you uh, find it encouraging um, as um, as I do. Uh, before we get into the show, I'd like to share a quick word from today's sponsor. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or pour over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Now I'd like to share with you my conversation with Dr. Jason Dusing. Enjoy. So I hope that's been helpful for you. I I have loved Midwestern Seminary. I actually met um, who did I meet? Uh, Jordan Wilbanks. Um, so yeah. he um, I I don't know what his official title is, <laughs> but he I met said, him. yeah director of church partnerships is okay. But he does a lot I, of things. But that's his. He, I know he does a lot of things. <laughs> but I I met him at um, a G three conference in Atlanta, and we just were really able to hit it off. And I had been leaning towards where I was going to go for seminary and um, his connection really just solidified it. And I had also met, uh, met Jared. Um, I guess I can name drop the first name. Um, sure. I, met Jared. <laughs> <laughs> I met, I met Jared at another conference previously and he was yeah. just so warm and, and, yeah. and genuine. And so I was just really thankful for some of the connections I was able to make. And I've just been really thankful for uh, the commitment to the local church. It's, it's not just a, I mean, Maybe I'm biased because I'm a student and you're biased because you're a professor, but it's not just a tagline. I think it's really a uh, it's like a it's a motivation for the uh, every endeavor that Midwestern does is it's serving the local church in a way that glorifies God and brings honor to his kingdom. And uh, I think that's a that's not something to take lightly. And uh, I certainly have become super appreciative of that investment. Um, just in so many different resources, so many different endeavors, um, it's, you can see that it's, it's all about the local church, not necessarily building a, a you know, a, 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 a huge infrastructure or institution or anything like that. It's, it's local church oriented, which is yeah. so, uh, I think, formative and important. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's, that's, <clears throat> that's a heartbeat. And I, I'm proud of what we've done. I hope we can, and, you know, and believe well that we can keep holding it together. And, you know, yeah. the key is just keeping that focus in front. If we do, then, you know, we don't get caught up in side controversies and all kinds of other things. <laughs> <laughs> just try to tear everyone apart these days, but uh <laughs> I'm but sure yeah. that's harder in this day and age than most. <laughs> it's really hard. And, and you know, we have a lot of really capable, high profile, you know, gifted people who mm. don't always agree even here. And that's fine. Right? Mm. That's that diversity we like. But, you know, just even trying to hold them all together, you know, it's. Um, yeah. 
it's yeah, but thankfully, you know, God's been kind and we're able to do it and, and you see the, the benefit of it. And, and Jared Wilson, you know, is, is a huge part of that and uh, mm. just trying to keep him uh, going and doing what he's doing. And, um, I, you know, he came out with this, it's really his second fiction book, but I hope it'll be the first of many. I think he actually really shines in fiction as much, if not more than his other uh, mm. work. So it's, it's really something. That's wonderful. Let me ask you though, on that point, um, when you have sort of institutional disagreements sometimes between faculty members, how like um, how have you like been able to personally kind of get through something like that? And 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 what have you kind of learned when you have you know perhaps come across another fellow professor, even in the same sort of realm as you kind of have like a slightly different agreement or or or, or point of disagreement or interpretation yeah. of something? How have you? been able to kind of get through something like that. Yeah. And, and thankfully those instances haven't been large in number uh, mm-hmm. here. You know, we have them, we have human beings, you know, it starts at the top <laughs> with our president, Jason Allen. Um, you know, he's just really created a phenomenal culture here at Midwestern of, uh, of openness and uh, transparency that starts with how he leads and cares for people that I think has really fostered an environment for, um, just clear communication. Um, and then I've tried to build on that communicating clearly as well, building and strengthening collegiality among faculty so that there's, if you will, oil in the, in the, in the engine, you know, so hmm. yeah, we've, we got an engine that's running at 80 miles an hour and these pistons are firing, but that's not going to be done well if there's not oil, <laughs> oil in the engine, you know, and that oil is this culture of grace and, uh, believing the best about one another. And, um, and, and again, just, you know, it's human nature. And so it just comes down to the basic things. If if you read or see something you're not sure about, well, go talk to that person before you talk to someone else or, uh, you know, believe the best about them and, and uh, you know, try to understand. But then one of the things, you know, I continue working on is, you know, we want unity here, but that doesn't mean uniformity, meaning that hmm. we're very yeah. fine for, we're confessional institutions. So people agree to and, and wholeheartedly support within, within confessional boundaries. But under that umbrella, it's perfectly fine for people to, and can even be healthy. It's just a matter of how you go about, you know, those, those disagreements. So trying to find people who are modeling that well, you know, giving examples of how that can be done well. And then just also helping people prioritize things like you may disagree, but how important is that? And is it even worth um, raising? But then too, you know, people aren't going to always do that well. There's going to be mistakes. So if a mistake is made or someone says something they shouldn't say, then, you know, Dr. Allen and I even try to model how we go about handling that and um, mm. uh, walking with them or working on it. So it's, you know, we're not perfect. We're an institution of, of sinful human beings. Um, <laughs> but but I'm really grateful on the ground here in, in Kansas City, you know, for that culture we've made. And I feel a sense of stewardship to, hmm. you know, try to uh, protect it and, and maintain it. And, and, uh, and thankfully, it's not just me. I mean, there's a shared everyone desires, realizes what God's given us here is very special. And there's a shared desire to, um, you know, protect it and, and, and promote it and, um, you know, and, and then just keep moving forward. So hmm. yeah, we, we're doing our best. Um, God's grace will, will continue to do that. Amen. Yeah. I, I find that so refreshing and necessary, um, especially as a, uh, you know, a, a Southern Baptist institution. I hail from a largely independent Baptist background, which I would venture to say that you know, Baptists haven't Baptists in the larger part of their history haven't hasn't always been known for their you know de- denominational diversity and being okay with that amongst themselves. And so I, I find it so refreshing that that has become hopefully more of something that's being. Uh, articulated and expressed uh, among Baptists that we can have the same sort of hearts without, you know, like you said, being united without being uniform, which I, it, it, to me is, is such a refreshing heartbeat amongst churches. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard because there's not a lot of examples or, or people to point to, or, um, you know, things to say, well, that's actually a great way to go about that, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> our culture is accelerating toward, if you don't agree with me a hundred percent, then we yeah. can't even talk to each other. Um, you know, and so that it's, you know, helping to think through, you know, levels of triage of what's most essential, what's not. And then, um, 
determining what's even worth uh, addressing and then what's worth even if sadly having to, to break fellowship over. But just talking a lot about how one goes about that and then trying to find you know good models and examples. But no, I, I long for the day, especially even for our students, to see and, and to model that you know people with smiles on their faces, even joking around, having a legitimate sparring conversation about important ideas, you know, but then they walk mm-hmm. away and yeah, I don't agree with them, but you know, let's go have lunch. <laughs> you know, that's just, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's hard to, uh, it's not to say that those issues aren't life and death important. Many of them are, but uh, there's a maturity mm-hmm. that I think is a value if you can yes. you know, model for people how to go, go about that. And it's not, you know, in, entire uniformity. Hmm. And I, that's something that I've been learning as a young pastor, even through this, uh, I hate to use this terminology, but these unprecedented times, <laughs> um, I have been learning uh, sort of the importance of Al Mohler's theological triage, which I think you've written about on a couple different places. Um, but I found it so incredibly potent um, for our present day in terms of navigating through what seems incredibly important in the immediate and uh, can sometimes be lofted into, you know, into a realm in which we divide over something as innocuous as, you know, perhaps a mask mandate or what have you. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's, um, it, it become really divisive really quickly. I think if we don't keep that that triage model uh, in our heads, which I have found very helpful to keep me a little bit sane uh, during these <laughs> weeks and months of uncertainty and uh, not knowing how to navigate what we're being told. <laughs> I, I, no, I, the you know Dr. Mueller's helpful framing of the triage model is helpful, and and you know even applying that to different localities. And what I mean is, yeah. From believer to believer, there's a certain triage of what doctors doctrines are important. But then, yeah. even within local churches where people have come in and one together, churches have to do ecclesiological triage, meaning okay, within the confines of our church, yeah, what right. are the most important things? Um, we're going to agree to do baptism this way. We're going to agree to do the Lord's Supper this way. But then, when it gets to lower level things, it's okay if not everyone's on the same page with this particular, you know, practice or something like this. So that's some of what I mean about just even training and thinking through how to how to go about these conversations. But the cultural moment is a challenge, and it is you know heartbreaking. I you know I try to um, find ways to be hopeful and optimistic. I, I when I can preach to myself and train my brain to think that way. Uh, and again, it's not just sunny side up naivete where I'm not aware of how <laughs> dire things are, but just even. You know, we believe in a sovereign God who, in his providence, um, knows the end from the beginning. So we have every reason, if anyone, to, to be helpful. A lot of the ways I navigate is just even being mindful of, you know, what has God given me to do? What is it I'm to pour my time and attention into? Yes, I have opinions on a whole host of things, but it's even, hmm. I hope, having the humility to realize no one's really wanting to know what I think about X, Y, and Z. And so there's no need necessarily for me to feel like I need to comment upon X, Y, and Z in order to, you know, be engaging the culture and things like that. So there's freedom that comes and even just understanding what our role is and what is the best way I can use my time and energy to contribute to that. And that's what I'm going to be about. It doesn't mean I don't care about these other things. It's just, I think my time's best spent, you know, investing in, in that. And um, mm-hmm. that, that keeps you out of a lot of trouble and it keeps you out of a lot of um, headaches and stressful days. And that's not that you don't care, but you're rightly assessing what's my role in this particular event or what's my role in responding to this particular thing. And I think Mm -hmm. oftentimes um, we're too quick to think we need to do something when that may not be what even what's required. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of vague, but um, (laughs) no, I think it does. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was actually going to ask you about that because I don't, hopefully this doesn't sound too insular, but sometimes it feels as if, that our present moment is one in which there is a renewed, and I hate to use this word, but I would say reformed, uh, lowercase r, sort of sense of the need for theological education, so to speak. And I would say that maybe it's social media or maybe it's just we're having a good moment in the church um, broadly uh, where there's this renewed just interest in being sound theologically in a lot of different areas and what have you. What would you say 
if if this is even true or if, if you have even noticed this or if this is just insular, I don't know, but uh, would make this time, this present moment, so to speak, sort of a, quote, prime time for sort of evangelical education and theological sort of training in the church, if that makes sense, if that question is resonant. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Um and I can, you know, kind of approach it in this way. In some ways, the the needs for theological education are timeless. They're the same needs in every generation. But I, mm. to, to your point, I think they're especially acute now because, um, you know, many uh, young men and women who are pursuing ministry as a vocation in, in whatever role in, in churches or ministries and things like this, um, they have access to more information than any other any other human being in the history of the world. Uh, that that information is coming at them immediately, um, and if they can listen to podcasts, they can read articles, and they think, and so that you can get to the point of sensing that I've got all I need, you know, or or if I don't have it, I can find it really fast. But that's a, a misunderstanding of what <clears throat> something like theologization actually provides. There's a necessary yeah. slowness that comes through processing through a degree. That again, I don't think everyone needs. I think most people need, but not everyone necessarily needs. Um, but that the form, the formality that comes with theological education forces one to slow down and therefore to let the training do its work on their, you know, you're, you're actually training your brains to think different way. You're stretching your ability to read and write. Therefore, you're giving time for immature thoughts to become mature thoughts. You know, you're, you're mm -hmm. given a buffer to, to kind of work things. I think that's true in every age. It's especially true now. I just think, you know, this generation and ones coming at need vehicles to help them to slow down to get the training that they that they need. Um, and the reason why I say it's timeless, you know, in um, in the 1800s, I mean, 18th century, 1700s, and Jonathan Edwards' day, you know, Jonathan Edwards is a you know, brilliant mind, greatest philosopher, theologian in uh, in this continent's history. He was operating at a time that wasn't yet the United States of America, but um, you know, he he was debating about whether to go to Yale for further theological education and um, was wrestling with whether even he should. And he came to realize as one biographer notes that he needed, he did not have the theological furniture is the way it, it was talked mm. about that he needed for the room to take care of souls, you know? So it wasn't, and that's a three dimensional image, you know, furniture. I don't have the furniture I need to be able to set up shop to care for souls. And I think if we think about it in a 3D way like that, rather than I don't, I haven't read the right amount of books, or I don't have this kind of, you know, it's no, it's it's more of what the education does to you that gives you 3D real life furniture that's now yours and your possession. That's you know allowed you to erect something that you can then care for, care for souls through the ministry of the word, yes, and other things. So yeah, that's good. So theological education gives that slowness, but also helps one to build a foundation, maybe a better metaphor than even furniture, um, you know, on, on which to build and give someone a buffer of time to, you know, to get that training. It can certainly be done. And sometimes the best way for it to be done is taking these courses while beginning to serve in ministry. Um, you know, I, I think that's ideal, but in this culture, yeah, I, I think the more we can get people to slow down for a little bit, um, the better. Yeah. Yeah, the, the image that popped in my head is certainly not as eloquent as theological furniture, but um, it's the difference, I think, between microwaving a pastor and slow cooking one. And, you know, I've I've felt like it, it just personally, um, I've been sort of in a slow cooking mode on terms of my theology and practice and ministry and like what you were talking about, being comfortable with perhaps where God has gifted you and, and, and where God has uh, shaped you and is continuing to shape you. I've, I've felt like that for, you know, going on six years or so that, that, that it was more like I felt the intentional sort of purposing of the Holy spirit and, and chiseling me into the minister that I am now. And you mean, I'm very young perhaps in my ministry career, but I, I, I think that slowness I've even recognized as perhaps one of the most important aspects of theological training, instead of just kicking guys out to the curb as fast as we can because we quote need pastors it's it's perhaps more to our advantage to let them sort of have a slow burn in terms of how they come to develop where they're passionate uh, and what they're passionate about and what sort of sticks with them uh, through all of the the data that they're inputting what as you said really forms them and shapes them uh, into the ministers that God wants them to be so I think that's very astute yeah no I 
Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly well said. I mean, there, there's so many, you know, I really have great empathy for this generation and the one coming behind it because they have so many things mm. um, pulling against them in the culture. And then you have things, you know, like 2020 and all of its challenges, worldwide pandemic <laughs> and everything else and and all that, that that's weighing on them. I don't know if a generation has endured this much um, than, than something other than the World War II generation, where clearly, you know, the whole hmm. world is caught up. And I'm not saying that what's going on now is the equivalent of a world war. I, I don't mean that in any, in terms of, um, you know, all that might come with world conflict. But, but I do think there is sort of that kind of global pressure that could cause one to think, do I really need to do this now? Isn't it more important to... Mm. You know, um, yeah. you know, just get out there and, and survive. Do it. Can I really justify um, further training? Um, you know, it, and of course, the, the analogy that brings that to mind, you know, C.S. Lewis. That was his thing in the in the forties. The, the you know, he was asked to give a lecture on uh, which ended up being called "Learning in Wartime," um, mm, basically yeah. speaking to students about why they he encouraged them to someone who fought World War One, but why he encouraged them not to rush out to the front lines, but to, to finish their education, not out of a sense of avoiding the duty to their country, um, but in the sense that that getting their education now will actually help them to serve their country, you know, even more in the future. So the best thing they could do is focus on their education rather than to rush out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a similar a similar time here today. I remember reading that lecture. Is that in the uh, the Weight of Glory? Is that in that collection? It could, yeah, it could be in there. It's in a... a I think it very well may be in there. It's it can often you can often find it in standalone. Um, oh, okay. Uh, volumes as well. Uh, Weight of Glory is you know a collection of essays, so um, I bet it is in there. Um, but um, but yeah, it's that that whole you know address is yeah really fascinating because it's he's giving it at Oxford and um, uh, if I if I recall correctly at the University Church of St Mary there, which is a historic building of itself. It's the same building in which. Uh, Thomas Cramer was tried, you know, centuries before John Wesley preached there. Uh, and then you have Lewis himself, Weight of Glory is preached there. And then I think learning in wartime as well. And, um, you know, but yeah, that's the thrust of it is basically saying you're going to face, students, you're going to face two challenges here in the midst of this world war. You're going to face the challengement, the distraction of excitement and enthusiasm, which is you need to be pulled out of this to go do something else. And then you're going to face frustration um, discontentment if you stay behind and uh, you know pursue your studies because you're you feel like you're spinning your wheels and those two principles if you extract them out that's every student uh, that I know today excitement getting do I have to finish this to go do that I want to get on the field now or and then discouragement you know all my friends I graduated college with are making twice as much money as I am and I'm still in school you know all this kind of stuff yeah. those two principles really stay with but it's again you're investing not just in the next you know, three years of ministry, or you're not merely just getting a credential so that you can get a job, but really you're giving yourself that theological furniture for 30 years of, um, mm. you know, uh, ministry and other things. Yeah. I'll just, I, I found um, that passage that I, it brought to mind when you were, when you brought up that essay. I, I, so I have a shared sort of new, I would say fondness for C.S. Lewis's more, theological essays and writings and such. I, I, I knew his, of course, Chronicles of Narnia side, but I, I earlier this year, uh, I made a point to sort of try and invest more in his other writings as well as Tolkien's other writings besides, um, besides Lord of the Rings. But uh, anyways, it brought to mind this wonderful passage, if you'll permit me. This comes from Learning in Wartime. He writes, Lewis, human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice, Human culture has always existed to exist, has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. And if men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal, which I find so astute because it fits even now. <laughs> As you said, he was writing this back at the dawn or in the middle of World War II. And uh, now it can still kind of fit <laughs> with mm-hmm. our current mm-hmm. our current moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he has that way. Partly he's such a fantastic writer just with his simplicity and, and things, but that way of reminding you of these deeper truths. And, of course, that's even what Narnia does on its own. But, 
Yeah, that mm-hmm. you, you can hear that echo too in the weight of glory when he talks about you've never met a mere mortal. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. there, are no, there are in one sense no normal people. These aren't normal times, and there are no normal people. Meaning, everything is you know has eternal significance and eternal consequence. And so, what you might think of as mundane, uh, normal life or around normal people actually is you know, of of great significance and consequence from eternal perspective. So that's a great passage. Well, it reminds me of that um, story, which I don't know if true or not, but the story of Martin Luther, if he's asked, you know, if you would, what would you do if you knew the world was ending? And he said, I would go and plant an apple tree. (laughs) And it's just, I don't know if that's true or just, you know, sort of legendary, but it's the same sort of principle I think applies to uh, what Lewis was trying to, insinuate uh through that lecture too so yeah that's good yeah i don't i don't i'm afraid i would i don't want to comment whether it's true or not because i don't know either <laughs> but, but the principle is still uh is good there for sure yeah yeah <laughs> the, the the truth stands firm even if the story doesn't <laughs> right right um in one of his other lectures which i think you've talked about this before but i came across this quote of of lewis's which of course there's many that we could go to and try to just disseminate for a little bit but we won't do that the whole time but uh, in the abolition of man lewis states the task of the modern educator mm-hmm. is not to cut down jungles but to irritate irrigate deserts mm-hmm. um can you kind of just unpack that a little bit and just kind of help maybe explain maybe what Lewis is talking about and kind of how that applies to theological education. <laughs> yeah. The, the, in the abolition of man, he's, he is, uh, if I recall correctly, you know, he's almost reviewing a book he read on, um, on modern education. And, uh, so you can see him, he's got his hackles up in response to, you know, uh, if we follow the, the, the teachings of the day, we're going to be creating, basically men and women without chests. And what he means by that is you're, you're educating everything, but creating a sense of heart within them and things like this. And so the task of modern educators is not to, is not to, uh, is to irrigate deserts, you know? Um, and, and so it's basically this whole thing of, of, you know, where, where I go from that is just this idea of it's education is far more than just the conveyance of facts and terminology so that people can then pass some test or, you know, gain some knowledge or even read a stack of books. You know, it's that whole formation of mind, soul and heart and body, mm-hmm. everything uh, in terms of, uh, you know, that education task. And so, yeah, Lewis is doing a specific thing there, but again, similar, there's principles that, you know, that are able, you know, we're able to pull out pretty easily and apply them to, you know, our own contemporary education task. And, of course, that's why I'm biased, but love to serve in theological education, especially because it lends itself directly to, um, you know, spiritual formation uh, in ways that all education can. You know, I have many friends who teach at Christian universities and teach a variety of disciplines and really do a very fine job of integrating Christian faith into that discipline. Um, but of course, theological education, you know, is, that's bread and butter, you know, part and parcel of, of that. Yeah. And um, I find that so incredibly impactful, um, this idea that what you're doing is irrigating a desert just because it it brings so much hope to the people that you're pouring into. And also, I think, lends a lot of credence to sort of the efforts that you're putting into, you know, what you're putting into your time and all those all those certain things. Now, let me ask you, did you always feel like God was leading you into ministerial or theological education or was that more of a winding journey towards that that end goal so to speak yeah a little i mean more far more windy in the sense of you know later to discover it i i didn't by god's grace i trusted christ as a college freshman so hmm. um so my initial formative discipleship years were um in my undergraduate studies and uh, particularly through a local church um that kindly accepted me and really showed me what new testament family and community is all about and um um and you know discipled me and and shaped my form of thinking and through serving there and coming to know people there i began to think through ministry as a vocation and even calling but wasn't quite sure i knew you know i had these desires but my challenge was is i didn't quite fit the mold meaning i don't you know, and, and even when I decided to go to seminary, I'm there making great lifelong friends, enjoying every bit of my classes. But there was something different, meaning I, you know, these guys are all talking about planning sermons and sermon illustrations and 
And, you know, they just can't wait to go out. And, and I love preaching. I love, of course, God's word. And I love, but I, but it, I, my level of natural thought about those things did not seem to match the, like, so either something's wrong with me or, you know, whereas, and I, the church that discipled me gave me a, a wonderfully formative heart for evangelism and missions. And I, hmm. I, you know, love uh, the great commission task and, and mobilizing people to consider that and not forget about that. And at that time was processing, well, maybe the reason I don't feel like I fit here is because I'm to be trained to, to go overseas and, and did, you know, explore that. And, um, and I'm always open to, to doing that as we all should be. <laughs> but the more I, you know, I attended a wonderful seminary for my master's degree and, um, was incredibly formative, much like the ways you know, we work out of our own experience, but much like the ways I've described. And because I'm still a relatively new believer, I'm still just even learning the jargon and, um, how, you know, Christianity in America works and uh, evangelical Christianity. And so it was, you know, even a, a, a newsflash to me that, you mean, it's a job that you could help run a seminary and teach in it. That's something you could, you know, so all that to say, it just kept, kept narrowing and I just kept taking steps forward and really enjoyed my studies. And, uh, you know, had opportunities to continue to further those studies. And I'm, you know, not quite like every other professor in that I, you know, have a desire to do administration as well. So that I was given opportunities to do, to do that kind of work. And so, yeah, kind of winding journey to just realize, oh, okay, well, this is, this is finally where I fit. And there's not many people like me. And that's why I've probably never really found that place where it's, I really love administration. <laughs> I really love teaching and, you know, to, to be able to get to do that where I am is, is really a, a dream. And, um, um, but yeah, winding journey for sure. Well, what I love is the, the fact that we all are able to eventually <laughs> find the place where God has us to blossom, so to speak, that old mm -hmm. familiar phrase, bloom where you're planted, so to speak, and right. find where that is, and then keep doing what you're doing for the kingdom of God, wherever that is, and whatever it may look like. And, and it's not one sort of person that's sort of the linchpin of the whole operation of God's mm -hmm. kingdom. It's all these different facets, and and it, it takes missionaries who go overseas. It takes local pastors, and it takes school administrators, right. <laughs> which is what I've uh, I found a great appreciation for those who are sort of training the quote frontline people mm -hmm. um, because they are in a very perhaps. Pressure field situation, perhaps in a lot of ways, uh, in terms of disseminating lots of theological truths that uh, will be very necessary for them to put into practice wherever God has placed them, and and mm -hmm. I, I find that a very, a very important cog in in, in sort of the uh, the kingdom, so to speak, if I can say it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I mean it's a, and, and I mean every word of this phrase, it's a wonderful place to serve. Mm, you know, the, yeah. the teaching task and the administrative task. It's an opportunity for serving really the people who are, are going to go on the front lines and we're at the at the you know the back seat serving those who are going forward. Oftentimes schools of higher education reverse that. They think that they're at the pinnacle and everyone's coming to sit at their feet. Hmm. Uh, but yeah. the reverse is actually the case, and even more so for the theological educator. I mean, one one metaphor I use when even talking to faculty here is that we're not unlike, you know, um, Himalayan Sherpas who help people get up Mount Everest. I mean, that's, if you think about it, you know, people pay thousands of dollars to go climb Mount Everest, but they need guides to help them up. But they, the guides are experts. Um, they've been up and down many, many times, but their job is to help these climbers get up to the top. And um, mm. so they, they almost do so invisibly, right? They, mm. the climbers couldn't get up there without them. They lead them, they guide them, they keep them from falling off. They, they, they protect them. They show them where danger is. I mean, that's what a theological educator does. But then when the climber gets to the top, you know, the Sherpa is not in the photo, you know, the Sherpa is probably taking the photo, you know? So, so for <laughs> students going through theological education, that's what professors should be almost very significant, weighty, informative guides who basically fall into invisibility by the time the students are done. And so on graduation day, the students should be, you know, thinking about their future and not really even remembering who their professors were if we've done our job, right? But yet we've hmm. invested and helped them to, to get to that top. And then they go out and, and serve the churches. So 
it's a wonderful place to to be other centered and uh, to organize the task to to carry out that work. And it's one of the most rewarding things because with every semester you say goodbye to some students and more come and uh, you get to climb the mountain again. <laughs> that is such a wonderful image. You know, I had seen this movie called Everest and it was very intense and it was very sort of, <laughs> it brought you into the moment of someone trying to ascend uh, that summit. And I, I can really resonate with that image as a, of a theological educator as a Sherpa, because it is, you're, you're very right. It, that invisibility that's there and sort of this thankless, praiseless sort of position at times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yet no one could kind of get by without it, so to speak. Uh, right. it's, it's almost this necessary that almost gets, um, unnoticed, um, but mm -hmm. in a good way. And I think, and, uh, that's why I'm always really thankful, uh, mm -hmm. for, uh, folks like yourself, um, professors who are so yeah. committed to theological training and education. Yeah. And that, and if you think about the, that metaphor even more, those Sherpas need to be experts. They need to be the most skilled people <laughs> yeah. on the planet. Life and death depends upon it, even yes. if no one knows their name. And so, you know, faculty, you know, can't do what they do lazily. They have to be very, very good at what they do uh, because life and death depends on it. It's just, hmm. are you willing to do that if, if, you know, if in five years no one remembers they took your class? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, there's, you know, and those types of things. And, and many will, of course, but that's not why you do it. You, you know, you do it to invest in, and to hand off, you know. Hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And that's sort of like... um that, that sort of fight uh, against your own sort of proclivity towards being noticed, I think, mm -hmm. is uh, something we all battle. And it reminds me of um, that book, Imperfect Pastor by Zach Eswine. Mm -hmm. He has that very, very pointed series of questions where he asks, do I possess a stamina for going unnoticed? And can I be, can I handle being overlooked? Do I have a spirituality that equips me to do an unknown mm -hmm. thing for God's glory? And I find those questions so pointed because I even, I would have to say no <laughs> to a lot of those, those questions that no, I don't think I have a, a theological stamina that allows me to be unnoticed. And uh, I find that very difficult to kind of come to grips with, but I find it so encouraging the fact that there are many who are, uh, have made a point to that, Hey, this is my role and I'm okay with it regardless of what accolades it does or doesn't get me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's very refreshing and enheartening. And I think that's a consequence of the gospel of grace. Yeah. And I, I think it, it does kind of come back to comfortability with how you're wired and where God's placed you. There's certainly nothing wrong mm -hmm. with being noticed. I mean, we even see, you know, Apollos in the Bible talked about as being someone who was well known, you know, in terms of his preaching ability. There's something, nothing wrong with uh, having a following and being and being known and using that influence to, to you know, it's just a matter of what what idol sits in your heart in terms of those things. But but there is virtue in in abandoning yourself from those things and just you know pursuing with faithfulness, you know, where God's placed you. The the administrative side of what I do, it, it's even more that way. I think it's done well if if people embrace the invisibility more often than not. Um, administrators in schools have the opportunity to be what I read somewhere as what's called institutional gravity, meaning you hold the school together, but you're invisible, <laughs> you know, mm. in, in the sense that uh, administrators are doing their job well, actually, if no one actually knows who they are or uh, what they do, but the school is healthy and, and going strong. So, mm. uh, and you could obviously, this is my field and what I know, but you could easily uh, translate these same things to local churches, right? All serving yes. in different ways and, and, and uh, working together toward a common mission. Yep. And that's what I find so resonant about it too, because that sort of invisibility is there for me too, because I'm not, you know, a shepherd who's trying to seek my own notoriety. I'm, I'm guiding other, <laughs> other sheep to recognize their good, their, the truer, good, uh, better, gooder shepherd, if I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so I, I resonate with a lot of that. Um, we, you know, we've talked about Lewis and um, Luther, but if I were to sort of summarize, I think who influences you most, I would say it's some amalgamation of Lewis and Tolkien and Spurgeon, and maybe not necessarily in that order. Uh, is there anyone that I'm leaving out, or or who would you say influences you most, perhaps in your research, reading, or or, or writing? Yeah, it's um, you know, I I 
you know, like a lot of things. So I try to <laughs> maintain being a generalist as much as I can. And, uh, uh, you know, a few years ago for a writing project and even a way of sort of teaching church history was trying to think of, well, how do you sort of do triage to use what we've talked about before in terms of even if you have mm. to pick out the main figures in church history that one should study and uh, picking up going off of our Mount Adverse conversation already just to make this as thematic as possible for you, Brad. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> main figures in church history almost are like a range of mountains where there's different summits of different mm. heights in terms of influence. And um, yeah. historical studies, this sometimes is critiqued as the great man theory, meaning is history really rising and falling on the backs of great men and women. And um, there's something to explore there. But I do think that a helpful way of doing history is by tracking biographies of people and things like this. So if you have to go era by era and pull out the most significant people that's a a a helpful exercise but um but you know your question in terms of my own you know it it, you know it depends on even you know for research and study um you know for me it's sort of english reformation uh rooted Mm. and then forward and that's how i get into some of you know our own nonconformist and then baptist studies and some of the figures there but um and so and then the the interest in the inklings um is it's turned into more of a hobby, but it it started as, um, you know, just sort of balancing all this other reading I'm doing with these thinkers that I enjoy. And of course, I, li- I love their fiction. Um, mm. But I came to just identify and appreciate who Lewis and, were, Lewis and Tolkien were as individuals, partly because they were professors. So as God <laughs> put me into that path, it's like, well, who, you know, what did they do? And then their bond of friendship, I mean, and friendship with others, those were just became that life that they lived became as intriguing to me as the worlds that they created. Mm. And then, you know, as a hobby as well, just the study of English literature, which I haven't received, you know, formal training in, but it kind of adds oil to the engine, if you will, for me, just reading on the side, seeing them as helping me to read, you know, great books and great literature. Uh, you know, mm. those have been, been formative on the side, but, you know, so the, you know, various figures throughout church history, of course, and then, and then, you know, those two from the kind of literature side, but then on the devotional side, you know, for, for many of my formative years, the sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, mm. still impactful. But then if I had to point to one figure, it'd be the recently passed J.I. Packer would be, mm. um, the Packer again, another sort of professor type figure, but his humility and care, um, not only with God's word and God's truth, but God's people, you know, those are all, yeah. uh, you know, things I admire. Yeah, definitely. Uh, from Packer and Lloyd Jones, they just have a way of, and it's, it's interesting to see these more perhaps recent figures to see how they will stand the test of time. And there's many I think you can already pinpoint and say we'll still be talking about them in hundred years. Um, and Packer's definitely one of those, I believe. Um, in regards to Lewis and Tolkien, it, it's I think there's so many people that have tried to articulate perhaps why it is that their writing resonates so much with, especially perhaps uh, like theological students or perhaps students of the word itself. Um, what would you say makes them so applicable? And, and because that was, you know, Tolkien's word, he liked applicability and not mm-hmm. analogy or allegory. Um, and mm-hmm. it, why is there, I've been trying to kind of resonate with it. I, I know it's because they were religious themselves and they poured a lot of that into their writing, even if it was sort of more mystical or fantastical. But um, I don't know. It's just, it's something that I've tried to explore, especially with Tolkien, because his his writing is so applicable that it can, and maybe that's just what it is, is that it can just, it just resonates with whatever moment you are in, so to speak. I don't know if that mm-hmm. even makes sense when I'm trying to... <laughs> go after (laughs) yes it does and and i'm sure that people who listen you know to your podcast probably are familiar with the article you wrote for mockingbird back in may but if they haven't Mm. you know your tolkien's advice for preachers is a great you know short intro to even some even exploring some of these things uh i really Mm. enjoyed it and uh thank you hope people will will find it perhaps you can link to it or something but um yeah but you're but yeah you're you're picking up picking up on the, some of the, some of the reasons why he's applicable there. You know, if I pull back to 40,000 feet, I think what's so attractive for theologically minded people to Lewis and Tolkien's is the ways they are either overtly Christian or brush up against Christianity just in the, 
the character morality and things that come out in their works. I think that hmm. is part of applicability, but I would pull back even farther in that they seem to be putting accents on um, what people throughout history have identified as the good, the true, and the beautiful. So, mm, yeah. so they, you know, in their works, that's, that's the things that, that's what gets the praise. That's what gets the, those are the heroes. That's the, the things they're writing about is in a fallen world of death and destruction and wars and pandemics and things like this, Lewis and Tolkien both are, are great in their writings of directing our gaze to things that are good, to things that are true and things that are beautiful, even if they're not overtly, you know, um, you know, uh, writing a systematic theology text and spelling it all out chapter and verse, those themes run throughout and therefore it makes it very applicable to those of us who are studying and do care about expositing God's word chapter and verse, if that makes sense. They, they just mm. resonate on these good, true, and beautiful things. And I think when you know more about them, that was a survival technique for them. You know, um, yeah. part of it was their own coping with what they experienced in world war one. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a lot of how they navigated their way through that. And then even as professors serving another generation going through world war two, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's often thought of, you know, they're just creating these worlds as escape mechanisms. Well, that's not necessarily wrong or bad. If the escape is driving you to understand and put accents on things that are good, true and beautiful, um, that can be a very healthy way of escape and perhaps the, the way in which you survive um, death hmm. and destruction. That's right. You survive that insanity as, as the image that is conjured by Tolkien's writing by thinking of that far green country right. um, that's under that golden sunrise. And I just, I love the words so much. And I, I think you're, you're right um, in terms of their emphasis on truth and beauty and I've been thinking about this a lot, especially I'm currently going through a sermon series at my church uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, mm. which I sort of find ironically somewhat similar in terms of its views of the world in which, you know, if you read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, um, there is this beauty that exists, exists, but it's kind of hidden and is sort of blind to a lot of people's eyes. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of opening up, up people's eyes to that truth and beauty mm -hmm. through the course of his writing. And I feel like that's very similar in terms of what Solomon does mm -hmm. throughout Ecclesiastes, where he's mm -hmm. reminding people of the beauties of the world that get lost amongst all of the vanity and, as the word is, frustrations mm -hmm. that have existed because we've put those frustrations in the world ourselves. It's entirely self-inflicted. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of reminding <laughs> himself, I think, in a lot of ways, but also what's true and beautiful is fearing God and keeping his commandments, this, this recognition of sovereignty as opposed to try to manufacture your own control or wield, uh, or use the world as your own sort of wielding, uh, use it to your wielding as like it's some sort of machine that can be mm -hmm. uh, manipulated or manufactured. And I think there's this wonderful sense of beauty that comes through that recognition that it was designed and it was created and spoken into existence by someone other than yourself. And right. uh, I, I find that same sort of beauty in, in Lewis's and Tolkien's writing too. No, and it gives that same hope and mm, uh, yeah. sense of patternness yeah. and certainty that, that there is someone who is in control of all things still. Mm. And uh, I think too, again, go back to one more metaphor of the whole oil in the engine reading and, and working through their works does provide, you know, oftentimes Christianity, Christianity for evangelicals, especially in America, can feel very transactional. Okay. What Bible mm. verses do I need to memorize? What do I need to say? Uh, how, how do I need to read the Bible? Uh, you know, what do I do for 15 minutes a day? You know, it can feel, and, and we sometimes in our effort to be more doctrinally sound, which I embrace and, and think we need more theology. We need people to, <laughs> understand the gospel even more and to, to see it as center of everything in their lives. But sometimes in our pursuit of that, we leave out the oil of just relationship with God and understanding of, you know, that he is living and his word is living and active and he means to walk with us and talk with us. And there's a world that he's created that we're living in and he's not absent from that world. And I think sometimes the worlds and the writings of Tolkien and Lewis just help us to see and to be reminded of, again, what's more real than what we see and in, 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 in touch and smell. Hmm. 
Yeah, you're. Oh, that's so right. I'm thinking of all these different passages that I want to talk about, but it just makes me so enthused when I can, uh, you know, disseminate. And actually, I, I've enjoyed so much. I've used many Tolkien quotes in my uh, Ecclesiastes sermons, and that yeah. always makes me excited when I can do that. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's really helpful. Even you describing Ecclesiastes that way, I think that's that's really strong. And and a very helpful way even for helping people to read that read and understand that book um, because mm. that uh, can be harder to get your head around but the way you're approaching it is sounds really good. Well, a very easy one that's there is of course chapter three uh, of Ecclesiastes where so, uh, the writer the preacher goes through all these different times and seasons for different things and then in chapter mm. seven he flat out states why are you why are you thinking about the the former days? You know, it's, he, he's asking that question. Why are you so consumed by the quote good old days? And it makes me think of that wonderful scene um, where you know Frodo opines his situation, and he says, you know, uh, why did this have to happen in my time? Right. And of course, Gandalf gives the preacher's response: <laughs> We all wish that these things didn't happen in our time, but that's not for us to decide. All that's left for us to decide is what to do with the time that is given yeah. to us. And that resonates so much with me, which is so incredibly fascinating that that line comes from, you know, a children's fantasy novel. But it's mm -hmm. a timeless truth in the sense that it's <laughs> it, it just reaches out to your to mm -hmm. your soul, I feel like, and reminds you that <laughs> we can't control these days. And mm -hmm. that's really what Solomon is, is doing through the scriptures. Mm -hmm. You have no ability to manipulate these days in which season you're in. All you can do is decide how faithful you're going to be in the season that you're currently in. And I find that so incredibly powerful and especially resonant with the seasons we've been in this year. Um, right. And it just, it just preaches to me all the time whenever yeah. I, I think about that. <laughs> that's, that's so great. And what a, what a really wonderful book to be going through right now, especially oh, uh, that's, that's fantastic. I've, I hope my, my congregants are getting something out of it because I'm getting a lot out of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Dusing. Uh, I'll just ask you one more question before I let you let you go, because I know um, you're, of course, very busy, but it's been an honor to chat with you. Um, if you could sort of, maybe in a nice way, but pin a seminary student down and force them to learn one thing, sort of like, you know, Matrix style by like imprinting it into their brain, what would that one thing be that you would want them to know or learn or sort of be formed by, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that, that at one level is very easy. Um, <laughs> the pursuit of it is, um, you know, lifelong and, and I say it without apology, but it is, I mean, it, but it may sound a little um, trite and, and, and so I'll unpack it, but Honestly, I hope students, if they come to seminary and they only get away one thing, it's just a a, a deeper, more profound grasp of the gospel, and mm -hmm. you know the good news that Jesus's life, death, and resurrection affords them not only forgiveness from sin, but the gift of Christ's righteousness. So that when God sees mm -hmm. them, He sees them clothed in Christ. If students can, you know, my friend and colleague here, Jared Wilson, his wonderful older book now, Gospel Deeps. Um, basically mm, explores yeah. different facets of this very thing in eight, you know, eight different ways. If students can get that in an Old Testament class or a New Testament class or a theology class, and just that is becomes the blazing center heartbeat um, of who they are, that will drive them into some of the things I've already said, greater fellowship with God, greater empathy for their fellow man, uh, a, a greater lover of the sanctity of life, uh, a greater a greater heartbeat and fidelity to God's word. Um, you know, when you truly understand the gospel, and and yes, in a saving sense, um, in a just justifying sense, but in, also in a daily sanctifying sense, um, that that is what I found myself and continue to find. Uh, you know, every day that that's the power plant. I mean, that's what you plug into. You know, hmm. and if students don't know that coming in, if they can be grounded in that even more, that's the greatest theological education we can give them. Hmm. Amen. There's nothing more important, nothing more vital or crucial than that. So, uh, Dr. Dusing, thank you so much for this. This has been a joy and a pleasure, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hopefully getting the chance to meet you one day in person, uh, maybe at a Ford the Church conference or something. Um, but I, I really appreciate you, and I'm so thankful for uh, the time that we've had together. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And, and likewise, Brad, I, I look forward to it. 
Thanks so much for listening. That's been it for this episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. I have to just say a big shout out and a big thanks to Dr. J- Jason Dusing for coming on the show. It was a privilege. It was an honor to uh, converse with him. And I can't wait to uh, hopefully do it again in the future. I hope you found this show very beneficial. Uh, please subscribe to the Ministry Minded Podcast. You can do so on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I appreciate all of your encouragement, all of your support, all the comments and listens, and uh, I, I really am uh, very thankful for many who tell me that they listen to the show. Uh, that that does my heart uh, a lot of good. So uh, I hope that uh, these shows are a, a blessing to you. And uh, I will see you on the next one. Blessings. Blessings.